Hey, it's time for another edition of Spitting Lugs with ESPN's Tom Luganville. I'm Lance Taylor for the next round. This is on Disrupt the Media. Like and subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. It is always brought to you by MyBookie. Use that code next round at checkout, and they're going to hook you up. That is MyBookie.ag. Lugs, you got a busy week. You've got three games in six days. Hard to keep up with you. You'll be in our fair state again <laughs> for Troy and South Alabama, and then Bedlam, which we will get into in a little bit. But I got to start here. I was in this ratty sports bar in Murfreesboro, Tennessee this past weekend. I had gone up for a Halloween party on Saturday night, and I had to stop off because this place told me, we've got the Pac-12 network. So I was going to watch <laughs> my, my Trojans against USC, and one of the TVs – Trojans against USC? You mean your Trojans against Cal? Yeah, I can't even keep up with it. They're, they're so bad right now. Um, <laughs> but while I was there, and I do want to circle back uh, to USC in a second, while I was there, one of the TVs was on the CW. I know Dabo doesn't know what the CW is and that they didn't play on the CW, but they got beat on the CW – to fall to four and four. And this is a team now, uh, when you start to look at this, they've got winnable games with Georgia Tech and North Carolina and South Carolina and uh, Notre Dame, but they also could lose all four of those. Yeah. What has happened to Clemson? I saw in their last 12 Power Five matchups, they're five and seven. Yeah. Yeah. Five and seven. The biggest difference to me has been two things they've, they've missed on the quarterback position, I think whereas they had three straight really good ones and two obviously back-to-back first-rounders. When you have that, you have a significant leg up. Um, and then the, the second thing, and this is the thing that's been, I think, the most glaring, is they've played bad football, right? It, it, they've been sloppy. They turn the ball over. The red zone lack of, of protecting the football is atrocious. They're heavily penalized. So this is a team that they take away from their own quality personnel by playing bad football. And that's the one thing when they built this program and Dabo and the staff were building the program, not only did they have great players, but they didn't go out and beat themselves, which made them, you know, outside of, you know, two or three teams in the country made them almost impossible to beat. Well, now they don't have the talent level that they've had at some spots on offense. I do think they're an elite defense. I, they, they have, elite level players on that side of the ball, especially in the front, but it's, it's not enough anymore, right? Because you don't have the complimentary aspect on offense right now, the way it stands. And just, there's been a lot made of, you know, Dabo's unwillingness to utilize the transfer portal. And in most cases I've supported him on that because I think it's sometimes hard to find guys in the transfer portal that are better than what you're already playing with when you're at a place like Alabama or Clemson or Ohio state. But when I keep hearing the we don't want to threaten or jeopardize the foundation of our core culture and all this and that, well, my question would then be this. How strong is that core foundation if you're worried about one or two guys and thinking they could come in and destroy it? Like if that core foundation is so strong and you went out and you got two to three guys try to help you in the transfer portal, and let's just say maybe a guy or two is a bad guy. Are you going to say that they're going to tear down the whole rest of the locker room? That's not good. And I said this earlier on the next round today that Will Shipley, look, he had some numbers last year, but in his third year, it's not fair to say his career has been wasted at the college level, but I think he's going to have a better NFL career. Is that fair? I think that is fair. Um, he's been playing a behind a marginally at best offensive line. When I And I say that when I, oh, I'm talking about like, when it comes to just pushing people around, 
know, Clemson can't do that right now. So a lot of what happens with the running back position, whether it's Shipley, whether it's Phil Moffa, is kind of having to make your own way. Like you're having, you're having to fix things. You have to make it right. And that's hard to do if you're not, you know, having a bunch of success and a bunch of holes and, and places to charge through. I think he's going to be a great player at the next level. He's unbelievable in the passing game. He's got return capabilities and special teams. He'll play for a long time if he stays healthy. Look, you've got an eye for this stuff, but I got to be honest with you. When I finally had to, to re-up on Fubo for a week again, and I forgot to cancel after <laughs> 24 hours to watch because that, that ratty sports bar did not have Pac-12. So I'm one of those nerds with a tablet watching USC and Cal there. And Fernando Mendoza, I got to be honest, I didn't know who he was. And he's a tall, lanky quarterback, a freshman out of Miami for Cal. And I thought he looked good. And I just wonder if it's one of those situations where Justin Wilcox isn't going to be able to keep a guy like that. What do you know about Fernando? And was it just a moment in time that he just played well against a really bad USC defense? I, I, listen, I, I don't know much about him. I mean, I know the name from recruiting circles, but when you're going from there all the way out to Cal, you're probably not an overly high-profile guy in terms of um, if you were, there was probably a high likelihood you would have ended up in the ACC or the SEC if there was a lot of interest there. Listen, Cal's hanging on by a thread. I mean, they're using, what, five running backs and been a, through at least three quarterbacks and put up 49? Yeah. If Jay, I mean, Jay not doesn't go down, they probably win that game going away. Hey, totally. they were minus three in turnovers, too. I know. They committed four turnovers in that game. But you know what? I applaud them for going for two um, in, in, in the overtime because they did what Arizona did not do, and that was they weren't going to give the ball back to Caleb Williams for one last opportunity. And um, But, you know, SC gets that win, but it, it doesn't really help them. Like, I mean, okay, well, fine. You got that win. Thank goodness. Guess who's around the bed? Oregon, Washington, and UCLA. I mean, that team could – I mean, they could lose out. Are, are you surprised? Look, I knew it was going to catch up with Utah sooner or later. At least I thought that. Kyle Winningham is that good of a coach. But in Rice-Eccles, there's a reason Vegas had Oregon favored. Now we know that. But are you surprised with not only Oregon winning that game, but how they soundly just beat down Utah? I was stunned. I really was. I mean, people do not do that to Utah at home or on the road, to be honest with you. Certainly not in Rice-Eccles Stadium. And it was the precision in which Bo Nix did it. I mean, look at the completion percentage. It wasn't like it was a big 400-yard day. It didn't need to be. But it was like a thousand little knives, right? And they just kept jabbing and jabbing and jabbing. And, you know, what they did is they put Utah in a position to have to play a game they're not comfortable playing. And that is to keep pace. You know, Utah is a defense, run the football, come off a of play action. Let's keep the score down. Let's shorten the game. And when you took that away from them and they're playing with a backup quarterback, and you're right, credit Utah for getting to this point, all right, getting to this point with how they've had to navigate that position. And by the way, you know, Oregon ain't SC on defense. So even though it was at home, you took them out of their comfort zone. And when they got down three scores, there was really no way for them to claw back into that thing. It's ESPN's uh, uh, Tom Luganville on Spitting Lugs here. Disrupt the media. Like and subscribe. Give us a thumbs up there. It is brought to you by Lance'sLike.com. Get all the winners in all leagues at Lance'sLike.com. Free play every single day. So back to the Ratty Sports Bar in Murfreesboro. There was a, a crowd of, like, Middle Tennessee State fans sitting to my left. And Florida goes down and scores against Georgia. And I hear one of them turn to his buddy. He's like, told you, man, this Georgia team is just not that good. 
This is one of the reasons I hate watching games out in the wild. I really do. And I just I, I, had to bite, I had to bite my tongue. And then the next thing you know, you go on this onslaught. In Georgia, I don't think we give Carson Beck enough credit. Um, I think that they felt like that they were challenged with people all week saying if they don't have Brock Bowers, there's no way they can win another national championship. That Georgia team, you mentioned this earlier with Clemson. Clemson used to play clean football. Georgia, two penalties, no turnovers. And uh, I mean, when they don't, when they play like that, I mean, they're just impossible to beat. Yeah, who's going to beat them? They're going to be the best team on the on the field every t- every time they take the field. I mean, it's like Michigan right now. Michigan is averaging fewer than three penalties a game. And I think they turned the ball over five times the entire season, right? So what Georgia's done, Georgia's done a couple of things. Number one, the quarterback's really grown up, and he has confidence. He has confidence. And I go back to that Kentucky game when, when he had to find other weapons, and he did it. And then now they get Ladd McConkey back. And so it, it, it lessened the blow, if you will, of the loss of Brock Bowers, at least initially. Now. We do have to start giving this this Georgia team some credit because looking at the season prior to it starting and looking at the schedule, would anybody have forecasted that they would be having a ranked Florida, a ranked Missouri, a ranked Tennessee, and a much improved Georgia Tech team down the stretch? This schedule isn't as quote-unquote bad as everybody's saying it is while we're sitting there watching Michigan's best opponent is Rutgers. Rutgers, and they haven't played Penn State yet. They haven't played Ohio State yet. I get that, but I I think Georgia's getting hot and peaking at the right time, which is going to be a handful for everybody they play. Yeah, and and again, the defense. I mean, it's they lose so many guys each and every year. Yeah, that you know you 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 just start to get to know these guys middle of the season. But it seems like Kirby is just, I mean, this thing is just going to continue on autopilot for as long as he's there. Like the, you know, the first 10 years or so at Alabama, it's like those uh, Clemson 2016 to 2020 teams were like every year, like, well, they're losing this guy to the NFL, they're losing that guy to the NFL. And oh my goodness, they're going to have to replace these three guys. And then the next year, the thing's better or just as good at a very minimum. But that's what happens when you're playing with elite level players. And you know, Lance, it's funny you bring that up because we've seen such competitive balance top to bottom in college football this year. And I, I was having a conversation with a Power 5 coach for an elite program a few weeks back. And, you know, he, he said to me, talking about the transfer portal and, and, you know, how some of the talent has been dispersed. And he says, you know what? He goes, we're not impacted so much with our ones and twos. You know, somebody like us or somebody like Georgia or somebody like Ohio State, this and that. He goes, what's happened is the number three, the guy that's third on the depth chart, that is young and very talented. Maybe his time hasn't quite come yet, but he's a really good player. That's the player you're losing to the portal that is then going to a middle tier power five team and becoming a difference maker or a starter for them instantly because they're not playing with Georgia's players or Ohio State's players or Alabama's players. And when you started to look at, okay, your top 22, your top 44 at like an Alabama or at, uh, you know, right now a, a Texas, that's, they're, they're not impacted. But it's that next guy that's now going somewhere else that's somewhat thinning out the herd. And it makes a lot of, a lot of sense when you start to think about it 
in, in that regard, because that really is what's happening. And it's making people stronger that wouldn't otherwise have had an infusion of talent coming into their program. Your network has their first college football playoff rankings going to be released this week. Uh, how would you have the top four right now? I would probably have it being Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, and Ohio State at number four. And I'm not convinced on Ohio State, but we have to give them credit for two top ten wins that were not easy to come by. Uh, the defense has vastly improved. Um, and they got a guy wearing number 18 right now. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Nobody else does. And, yep. you know, I think there's him and I think there's Luther Burden and then everybody else at, at wide receiver. Um, I can see why people would have Michigan at number one. Um, but I'm not ready to do that just yet. And to be honest with you, I have Florida State in there because I think they deserve to be in there. But do I think they're as good as Georgia? or is Michigan right now? Probably not. Because I look at maybe a five or a six, right? Like, if you ask me, who do I think playing the best football in college football right now? You know what I'd say? Oregon. Oregon. I'd say yeah. Oregon. Yeah, I was going to say, then, if Oregon, Oregon and Florida State neutral field right now, you think Oregon wins that game, right? I do think Oregon yeah. would win that game, yeah. And listen, I understand that Washington beat them. So, and the committee, now the committee has, there is precedent. They have come out with a ranking in years past where they put a team ahead of a team that they lost the head to head to. So they're not afraid to do it because the one thing the committee will do, and if you go through the mock process and it's fascinating is yes, they're going to take into account what's happened. They're going to take into account head to head strength of record, strength of schedule, all of those things. But the other thing they do take into account and it's important is they take into account who are you right now? Like, how good are you playing right now? And they're going to weigh that against some of the other things because they're not going to just go against what their eyes are telling them. If a game four weeks earlier, they lost, let's just say Washington and, and Oregon. But now you fast forward and we just watched Oregon do what they did. And we just watched Washington really kind of struggle with, you know, Arizona and Stanford. And so, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what they do because you still have Alabama lingering, Texas lingering, Oklahoma lingering. Heck, you could have Ole Miss lingering in there. You could have LSU lingering in there. So I don't think the chaos – I think the chaos is far from over, bro. I really do. Spin Lugs, ESPN's Tom Luganville. I'm Lance Settle for the next round. It's on Disrupt the Media. Like and subscribe. It's brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com. Put in that promo code Lugs. L L or L O O G S. That's promo code. They're going to hook you up at checkout. So I want to stick with the Big Twelve. Um, Kansas State to me is a fascinating team, and you mentioned that LSU might be hanging around with two losses. Well, can you imagine? And I don't think this happens. But if Missouri was to beat Georgia this week, and Oklahoma State beats Oklahoma, Kansas State's two losses: last second field goal to Missouri in Columbia, and then a eight point loss, one possession. Uh, loss in Stillwater, and that was the coming out game for Ollie Gordon. A lot of people don't know who Ollie Gordon is, but oh. Oklahoma State, they have found their offense. You're going to be in Bedlam this coming weekend. Uh, first on Kansas State, how dangerous is that two-quarterback system? And now that they've kind of got their footing, uh, this is going to be a tough out down, down, the, down the stretch, including Texas at home this week. Listen, the fact that, that Texas is playing at home is a big deal, but 
from what I saw on Saturday, I don't know if Texas can can beat Kansas State with with Blake Murphy. I just don't know. I think he would have to play lights out and so much better than he played on Saturday. And not that he played poorly, but he's not Quinn Ewers. Um, he made your typical redshirt freshman mistakes. He's not innately accurate, in my opinion. He has a big arm. He's a big, imposing guy. But right now, Will Howard, Avery Johnson, Kansas State getting back on track after that really was a, a beatdown in Stillwater versus Oklahoma State. And it's interesting because Chris Kleiman called it. I shared this with Jim on Monday Morning Live. I was in pregame warm and talking to Chris Kleiman last year for the Sugar Bowl. And we had just had uh, Avery Johnson for the week down at, at the Under Armour All-America game. He's coming off of a Big 12 championship in which Will Howard played out of his mind during the season. And here's Chris Kleiman saying, you know what, man, that Avery Johnson kid, he's going to push this guy. Um, kind of looked at him like, you know, that's a big, pretty steep learning curve. That's a big, that's a big jump. And lo and behold, here they are, and they are a problem. And it's going to be a tall order for Texas. And by the way, you know, speaking of that, you've got, we've got a lot of chaos in the Big 12. But you do, not only do you have Kansas State going on the road, then the following week, I think Texas has to play in Ames versus a sneaky, competitively good Iowa State team, and weird things happen in Ames. And I think that's where Texas is hoping, because that would be three weeks out on a, a, a grade two sprain for Quinn Ewers. They would be hoping they'd get him back for that contest. And then between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, I mean, coming off of that Kansas loss for Oklahoma, this is not the environment you want to be going into for what could potentially be the last bedlam ever. Yeah, it's a snake pit. I I can't yeah. imagine the fans in Stillwater how much they hated Oklahoma before Oklahoma defected to the SEC. But now that this is that last matchup for who who knows how long, uh, and Oklahoma State is one of the more confident teams right now. I thought that I they were a complete mess in September, where it was Mike Gundy trying to figure out one of three quarterbacks, and now they've got it figured out. Play good defense, run the football. Yeah, and and a complete one eighty from a year ago. They couldn't run the football at all, man. I mean, it was. We had them, and it was their biggest level of frustration. They could not come up with a way of moving the line of scrimmage. They were battled, uh, banged up the whole year with Spencer Sanders at quarterback. They had to try a couple others, two of which have played this year that aren't the answer. And then the journeyman, Alan Bowman, comes in out of nowhere and has steadied the ship. But it's Ollie Gordon. I, I think this is the biggest sleeper Heisman Trophy candidate that nobody's talking about. And listen, now they look at Oklahoma, and they say, Oklahoma's vulnerable. They're coming into our place. We're the hot team. And, and so it's going to be great. It, it's one of the more, more remarkable turnarounds because remember the negativity surrounding this program in the offseason, the mass exodus in the transfer portal oh, yeah. of good players from Oklahoma State. What was the answer going to be? Are they finally at the end of their rope? Are they done? Then you have the 33-7 to 7 thrashing at home by South Alabama, and now you're really scratching your head, and nobody would have forecasted this six, well, let- seven weeks ago. And let's just say that, that this plays out and Kansas State wins on the road as a, a small dog. Um, mm-hmm. And let's say that that Oklahoma State, as a small dog at home, wins out. Is the Big 12 done? Uh, three weeks ago, we were saying, hey, we're going to get a rematch of Oklahoma, Texas. But if those two things happen, which both are likely, then everyone in that conference has at least two losses. It would be, it would be I think, the most vulnerable – uh, conference for this to happen to. Yes, they would be the one most in jeopardy. Um, and, and again, not knowing how things are going to shape up 
in the Pac-12, there's still a lot of football between high-end teams in that conference yet to be played that could also have a similar impact. You know, SC has to play Oregon, Washington, UCLA. Then you still got Oregon has to play Oregon State in the Civil War. Washington's still going to have to play in the Apple Cup and, and, and match up against SC. So there's a lot of chaos that could still ensue in the Pac-12. But this, yes, the Big 12 is the conference um, that would be in the most jeopardy, in my opinion. All right, Spitting Lugs, ESPN's Tom Lugabell. I'm Lance Taylor from the Next Round. It is brought to you by our friends at MyBookie. Use that code Next Round. Secure that first deposit bonus up to $1,000. That is from MyBookie.ag. Uh, one more sports, and then we'll get to entertainment here. Um, right. Look, I know it wasn't Devin Leary's fault they lost this weekend against Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But I look back the last couple of years. I mean, quarterback play, this Will Levis thing, we laughed about it forever. There's no way he's a first-round guy. He ends up falling to the second round. But he goes out this Sunday, his yeah. debut, four touchdowns, and they win the game. Um, is Kentucky's offense, for whatever reason, just not quarterback friendly? Well, let's let's see what Will does next week and the week yeah. after and the week after. I'm still shocked. I'm still shocked in one game he was able to do that, though. I, I, I am, too. And I say that, though, because that is what he showed at Kentucky. He had he was a roller coaster. He was up. He was down. He was often injured. He was very erratic. He would turn the ball over. Then he would look unbelievable because he has unbelievable raw talent and his arm talent's ridiculous. But they've got a, a, an NFL caliber, uh, caliber coordinator there that's done well with quarterbacks, that has a tried-and-true system um, in, in Coach Cullen. So I, I don't know, man. They, for whatever reason, it just seemed to always be hit and miss, right? There's no level of sustained consistency um, outside of what they pride themselves in, and that's running the football. So it's Halloween week. Do you and the uh, wife dress up at all? So I'm sure we've talked about this, but, you know, Halloween is it's it's literally my Christmas. I love Halloween more than any other thing. And it wow, I did not me, know this. Oh, yeah. It has pained me to see my children grow up because that leaves me being the only kid. Um, I have such disdain for our school systems that don't allow kids to dress up for Halloween on Halloween and go to school. What are we doing? Drives me absolutely nuts. It's the best day of the year outside of the final day of the year. Yeah. And so for me, to answer your question, yes, I try to all the time. The problem is it fell on a week this week where I've got three games coming up in the span of about six days. And then on Tuesdays for me, I'm getting together with Brownie so we can can do our hour-long ball. Then I have College Football Live at 2 o'clock Eastern. Then I have the ACC Network. And my evening now is going to be South Alabama and Troy. So this will be a, a, a year of Halloween. I might have to walk around my home, though, in some form of a costume. If I'm really going really to devote myself uh, to, to this and just have to enjoy it myself. Nobody sees it. If, if, if that would be unfortunate. I mean, I don't know. We'll find it. We'll, we'll figure out. Uh, maybe I'll do maybe I'll do ball in costume tomorrow. So I'm going to be, I guess, in costume. tomorrow. I can't tell you what I am because we do a um, kind of a secret reveal on the show. Okay. And I actually went as this uh, this character on Saturday night to a uh, pretty big party up in Nashville. And probably 10 people guessed, 15 people. Only one got it right. So. I'm not doing something right or I'm hanging out with the wrong people. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I put a lot into it too. Would you feel like I would recognize it? Yes. Knowing I, us, do you feel like I would get it? A thousand percent. Okay. And, and okay. Dunaway and Brown will get it. I figured I was at the wrong party once they didn't get it. But uh, are you a uh, are, are you a candy guy though? I'm a, well, here's the thing. This is also very polarizing because I'm above the firm belief that there are there are things that you grow up that you either are or you are not. For example, you either grew up in a family that played cards or you grew up in a family that didn't play cards, right? I grew up in a family that didn't play cards. Along those same lines, you either grew up liking candy corn or you don't. There's don't. very little gray area. See, you don't. See, I do. I love it. What you do is My you son loves it. peanuts. Salted peanuts and candy corn, throw them in a baggie, shake them all up. Then you get the salt and the sweet. I try to stay away from the sweet as best I can, but I do sneak some Halloween candy here and there. But I'm telling you, man, it's heartbreaking as a parent when you say to your kid, what are you, what are you going to go out as Halloween? I don't know. I'm not dressing up. And then a little single teardrop goes right down your cheek. Yeah. Different world, man. It is, that- man. It's a bummer. Best uh, scary movie of all time for you? Best scary movie of all time. Now, are we talking about like true scares? Or are we talking like bloody and gory? Uh, I mean, go whatever direction you want. I'm not a horror guy. I've told you that. Like, But yeah. The Shining to me is like a masterpiece. The funny thing, critics are so weird because when it came out, it got panned. Everybody hated it. Um, it uh, uh, Shelley Duvall was up for a Razzie. I think she might have won Best Actress. For being the worst <laughs> actress that year, Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King were at odds. Uh, yeah. Creatively, they didn't see, and and Stephen King doesn't even recognize the film. But I think it's awesome, I, and it's one of those I own. I can go back and watch it whenever. But it's really the only go to for me. I think we've talked about this. Like um, some of the psychological thrillers, like Seven and Silence of the Lambs, are fantastic. But I don't really yeah. consider those Halloween. It's got to have like a supernatural element to it, and The Shining does have that. Yeah, I'll tell you one movie that I loved, and I loved horror movies as a kid, and understanding at my age, like, I grew up as a younger kid when all of those great early 80s horror movies came out. So, like, you know, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, Cujo, like, all of all of those great movies that came out during that time was awesome. But when I was really little, and I can't believe my parents let me watch this, but they knew I loved scary movies. Do you remember The Omen? I got drugged to the omen as like a five-year-old. Yeah. Like my mom used to take me to the theater to see the shining and the exorcist and the <laughs> omen, the <laughs> omen. I had, I had nightmares about those Rottweilers. I really did. Dude. The omen is a really in it. And it, and it holds up today, man. Like I don't like devil really... stuff though. I don't like spiritual devil. That, that stuff's believable to me. Like, I'm not so going to believe a hotel is, is haunted. Yeah. I just, it, it, it's eerie. <laughs> So because it could be real, yeah. you're like, hey, I got to stay away from that. Well, The yeah. Omen definitely does that, dude. I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm with you there. So you asked me a question, and I know I'm not giving the right answer because I love scary and horror, scary movies, horror movies, like all of those. And I'm trying to think of like, and I'm drawing a blank on so many great ones. But if you were going to do like the bloody stuff, like the original uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original Friday the 13th, the original Halloween. All right. All really, really good. Those are classic staples. But then I think horror has changed so much in the genre and the sense that it's gone away from the gore and the blood and guts. And it's gone to more eerie, unsettling, 
musical scores, jump scares. Like we've gotten into like the conjuring now, right? We've gotten into insidious. Yep. We've gotten into maybe, okay, here it is. I'm going to give it to you. Here's my favorite one. Sinister with Ethan Hawke. I, I have heard that if you don't like horror, it will scare you to death. If I t- if you turn that on, you'd probably text me and be like, dude, why did you why did you tell me to watch this? <laughs> well, I won't. Don't worry. It's uh it's it's actually my wife's favorite scary movie. She didn't even know it existed until and she likes that stuff. You know, it's the creepy, like, oh my, what is going on? Blah, blah, blah. It's not the slasher stuff. It's not this and that. It's it's in that other more ghostly, more haunting, and it's got it's got a killer script. So the entertainment world lost a big personality this past week, Matthew Perry. I know the autopsy yeah. is going to be performed, and it looks like a drowning. Don't really know the details about that. Um, you know, obviously that's that's tragic. I, I will say I was not a fan, fan of Friends, and I know I'm in the minority. I just I always thought it was a little hokey, and people swear by it. Where were you on Friends, and where were you on Matthew Perry? I liked it, but I never ended up finishing it. I took it to a certain point where I kind of felt like, all right, it's the same thing over and over again. Like it's not, it's not going anywhere else. It's probably the same reason why I stopped watching 24. Like I watched all of those seasons for all those years. And it was so good. And then I finally just got bored with the exact same thing all the time. So did I think it was entertaining? Yes. Did I think it was well-written and, and they did a good job of it? Absolutely. I also feel strongly that – Literally, David Schwimmer would not have a career in that profession without that show. No, I, right? I would agree with you. You know, I read this thing on Matthew Perry this week that, uh, and this is kind of eerie, that he, his career was going nowhere. Now, look, he was in his young 20s. I think uh, his mom was like the uh, assistant to the prime minister in Canada. But he got on his, his hands and knees and prayed that he would give up whatever he needed to give up to become famous. And two weeks later, he got cast in Friends. Just That's unbelievable. Weird. No, yeah. he was on Growing Pains as a, like a teenager. Yeah, I know he was on Growing Pains, and then he was yeah. in the uh, the movie uh, The Life and Times of Jimmy Reardon, I think, with the River Reardon, Phoenix. Yep. And, and know the other thing, too, which is so weird, it just goes to show you how child actors or teenage actors, like what can happen and how, how much their past can diverge. Is you have him. Matthew Perry, who gets this role, gets this show, and it changes all of those people's lives forever, right? And then he actually has a couple of pretty good comedy hits in the movies. Then you get somebody like Jason Bateman, who is on Silver Spoons as Ricky Schroeder's buddy, right? Yep. Then he does this other little-known show called It's Your Move, and then completely disappears, and then out of nowhere has become one of the biggest stars yeah. in America over the last 15 years. Like it's like, how did that happen? Yeah, it's crazy. And and he's one of the, he's such a comfortable actor. He can do I almost know. anything. So yeah, I really enjoy his work. Yeah. He, he's good. I mean, when you're doing this, when you go from horrible bosses to being believable in Ozark, you're pretty good. Right. So what are you watching? Anything pop up the last week or so? Uh, football, unfortunately. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> I've, I've been, I'm so behind all that stuff, and I can't get caught up, and I don't need to. I need to focus on the task at hand. I just, I'm waiting, I'm wanting, 
I'm wanting the Yellowstones to come back. I'm wanting the, the 1883s and the 1923s and whatever all they're going to come up with. I think the next one is 1936 or whatever. I want some of those to come back. I really love the, the, the Rockies and the Western dramas. And I, I love those things. I'm looking Tol- forward to Tulsa King, show. right? What? Tulsa, Tulsa King. King. Come on. Yeah. Bring me back Tulsa King. <laughs> hey, bring me back Reacher on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did. My my, my little guy loved it. That dude was gigantic. And that was so weird because I never saw Jack Reacher the movie. But how do you cast Tom Cruise when the dude, which I didn't realize the premise, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, he only agreed to make it and pay for it if he got to be in it. And they weren't bad, they were pretty decent. But, and again, I don't, I'm not a huge reader. But a buddy of mine who loved those books, he's like, dude, how do they cast? He's like, this dude's like 6'5, 240. Right. And they got five, seven, whatever. But he was actually pretty good in them. But I mean, listen, it's Tom Cruise. I mean, you watch him in Mission Impossible. You see him and do all these things. I mean, he can pretty much do anything. So he made it believable. So I asked this to Brock Heward last week. So I'll ask you before we roll. Um, Best football movie of all time. Because he told me one that I haven't seen, which will shock you that I haven't seen this one. But mine is North Dallas 40 is my favorite. That's a great. I'm surprised you're old enough to say that. Um, I'm going to give you one that I did a huge project on for my master's degree thesis on the rise and fall of what can happen to you as a professional athlete. Have you ever seen Everybody's All-American with Dennis Quaid and John Goodman? I have. Yeah, good film. The trajectory of that, and it it holds true today in, in terms of how much, because of a talent that you have, how much that can prop you up into being this just out of the stratosphere, iconic brand person, public figure. And the moment you lose it, how fast it all goes away. And the movie is a great, just there's a great arc through Dennis Quaid, who plays the lead role through his college and going up and going up and being the big man on campus. And, and at that time, and then what happens when things don't go well? And what do you do? And what matters? What counts then when all these people that were hangers on, that were in your corner, when things are going well, all of a sudden aren't? And it's a football movie, but it's really about more than that. I was actually the focus of my project. That's one of my favorite ones, um, without question. I've always loved Varsity Blues just because I think it's silly funny. Um, my biggest issue with football movies generally is they never get the football right. I don't know who's choreographing it. I don't know who they're hiring to play quarterbacks in these things. It just looks so bad. Let, let me tell you this story. It's, it's funny you bring this up because I think this is how we got on it last week, uh, me and Brock. So I was at a event that Rick Neuheisel always comes to in Birmingham every year. And I'll never forget, Rick told me this story like 15 years ago at this event. But the movie Point Break, the original, 1991, Catherine yeah. Bigelow, it was first her directorial, directorial debut. debut. yeah. So she calls up uh, the UCLA football offices, gets Neuheisel on the phone. He becomes the technical advisor. She's like, I've got this Canadian actor, Keanu Reeves. We need to teach him how to throw a football. And so he goes out there and he said, Keanu shows up in jeans with holes, jean jacket. And he's like, do you want to change? He's like, no, man, we'll, we'll throw it around like this. He said he could not throw the football, didn't know how to grip it, knew nothing about it, yeah. had never thrown a football in his life. And he called up Catherine Bigelow and he's like, you're fucked. 
He was like, <laughs> this, this is not going to work out good. So he had to help her film the scene on the beach where it just showed him, you know, uh, dropping back, but he wasn't doing any of the technical throwing of the football. He just See, didn't do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so another one, I think obviously remember the Titans is great. Um, but, uh, and I'm don't, I'm not going to say Rudy. Rudy is not a great football movie. I'm sorry. Okay. I've never it, seen it, the program as the one that Brock was shocked. I've never seen the program. Oh, I am stunned that you haven't seen that, especially for somebody like Brock and myself. He's a little younger than I am, but I was playing college football when that movie came out. Like I experienced that I'd grown up in it and my dad being a college coach, I think I was in between being at Georgia tech and Eastern Kentucky at the time. So like I, we all identified with that movie. Now, some of it was far-fetched. Some of it was kind of legit. Yeah. Um, so it's worth uh, the watch, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's good. I'll tell you, do you want to know what is a really underrated great football movie is Radio. See, I've never seen it with Cuba. Uh, yeah, dude, it's really good. You need to watch it. Ed Harris, Ed Harris is great because he is so perfectly cast as a 1960s high school football coach. Perfectly cast in, in, in that regard. So, yeah, you got it. So you haven't seen that. You haven't seen Radio. You haven't seen The Program. Yeah, um, I'm building a list here. Now, I told you last night, I, I reached out to you because um, internet was cut in my backyard, so I could not watch anything on demand. And I had yeah. to go back and look at my DVR, and one of the movies that I had recorded from, like, last year was King Richard with Will Smith. And I didn't know the backstory on that. Yeah, I mean, you were like, it's I good. didn't have any desire to watch it. I liked it. It was the same with me. I didn't have any desire to watch it, but I watched it last night. I thought his performance was outstanding. Uh, that's one of those characters where you appreciate the love for the kids and and his ability to grind, but he also wore you out at the same time. Like you wouldn't oh, have wanted yeah. to be around him. But I mean, that's fascinating how he was able to package his kids and really yeah. get them involved. I mean, that, that's I mean, pretty. Just awesome. Think about be how before his time he was. Oh yeah. Can you imagine if that when that took place with those two girls at their age, and there was social media and name, image, and likeness? Oh, dude. They look. They they make the can the 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 Cavender twins look like they don't even exist. <laughs> he is ESPN's Tom Luganbill. It is spitting Lugs. We do it every week right here on Disrupt the Media. Like and subscribe. It is always brought to you by Lanceslock.com. Jump on board. Free winner every single day at Lanceslock.com. Safe travels. We will see you Thursday night, Troy, South Alabama, and then the Battle of Bedlam. Cannot wait for that one. Uh, what is that? Is that two thirty ABC? Yeah, two thirty ABC. Yep. Yep, 2.30 ABC. And watch Sinister so you can text me and cuss me out. <laughs> well, I'll do it. Good <laughs> stuff, brother. All right, you too. We'll see you later.